It is a crisp November morning in the year 1980. You, along with countless others, tread the streets on your way to work, joining the ranks of those settling in their roles in the kitchens, buffets, and restaurants. The hum of activity envelops the hotel desks as they welcome the first rays of a new day. The festive air carries whispers of upcoming holidays as optimism for a productive day takes root. As you traverse the vast expanse of the Las Vegas Strip, you find yourself amidst the grandeur of the city's most illustrious edifices. Your routine path leads you through the hushed corridors of a deli, typically devoid of life at this early hour. A couple of cooks quietly prepare for an imminent morning rush. Absent are the usual throngs of customers, clients, or gamblers. And this solitary journey through the dimly lit passage stands as a tranquil preamble to the sensory overload that awaits within the walls of your demanding job. A moment of calm before the storm. Yet amidst this somber and shadow-filled chamber, an anomaly disrupts the tranquility. A scent teases your senses and an eerie chill courses through your bones. Suddenly, you are face to face with an elemental force of nature, a force as ancient and as mythical as humanity itself an entity that has shaped our evolution since the earliest days of civilization. And there, within the dark recesses of the neglected deli you pass through each day, you confront an unsettling truth. The casino is engulfed in flames. Instinctively, you reach out to the security team, urgently conveying the gravity of the situation. Your gaze is fixed upon the screen before you. Flames ascend from floor to ceiling, a titanic manifestation of unbridled fury. Above a pall of black smoke thickens, spreading its tendrils ominously. Adrenaline courses through your veins as you command them in action, urging the dispatch of fire trucks. And racing to a fire hose on the adjacent wall, a security officer joins you in a desperate partnership. Together, you shatter the security glass, seize the hose, and channel a torrent of water towards a raging waves. But alas, the Furno's tendrils have extended too far. In one final act of desperation, you seize a fire extinguisher and sprint down the corridor, determined to find an alternative approach. The door on the other side of the deli yields to your urgency only for an overwhelming force to assail you. You're thrown back. Your feet lose contact with solid ground and you collide with the wall. As your senses struggle to reassert themselves, a toxic miasma fills your lungs as you labor to breathe. Swirling obscurity envelops your vision and you find yourself in the clutches of a surreal, nightmarish reality. Truth draws upon you in a moment of grim realization. You are ensnared in a life and death struggle within the belly of a towering inferno, a 26-story crucible of flames and chaos. You've discovered the Half-Watt Podcast. We want to educate and entertain by tapping into the most trusted source of new technology, the ones installing and innovating it. You, the tradespeople that build from the ground up. Join us as we talk with industry leaders, veteran contractors, and even some young blood. Welcome aboard. So today's episode is a little bit different. This is gonna be called Half-Watt History. What this is is a deep dive into the MGM Grand Fire. Now, this script was written by my buddy Tyler, uh, but it is based upon a firsthand account of a person who was actually there. So the ominous piece I just read to you uh, happened. This is the way it went down. So on November 21st, 1980, this catastrophic incident forever changed the landscape of fire safety. 
uh, and emergency response in the United States. If you were living uh, and saw this on the news, it was horrific. And, and I remember seeing it. Uh, 1980 wasn't all that long ago for me. Hell, I graduated in 82. So I remember watching the smoke pour out of the top of this machine, or out of this machine, out of this building. You just, you couldn't, you couldn't believe it. Anyway, the MGM Grand Fire, which occurred in Las Vegas, Nevada, claimed the lives of 85 people and, and injured over 700. 700. The event exposed critical shortcomings in building design, fire safety regulations, emergency preparedness, ultimately leading to uh, significant reforms and improvements in the fire safety practices nationwide. I want to hit a couple of things here. Building design, fire safety regulations, and emergency preparedness. If you go to Vegas today and look at the way that these casinos are put together, and I know people who have tested and worked on these fire alarm systems, they are massive in these casinos. Massive. This is the catalyst, folks. This is what did it. So construction of the 26-story MGM Grand Hotel and Casino, currently it's called Bally's, started in 1972. It opened in December 1973. There were 2,078 2, rooms at this hotel. That's massive. The total area of the hotel and casino was about 2 million square feet. Fire sprinkler systems were not installed. Fire sprinkler systems were not installed in this high-rise hotel casino. Approximately 380 by 1,200 feet or 450,000 square feet and in the restaurant areas. So only a partial sprinkler system was provided. And this covered the showrooms, the arcade, and the convention areas. So do we have partial sprinkler systems in buildings in, in I'll just pick on Portland? Shake your head yes. Uh, I have been in, I, I can't even count how many buildings where there is a sprinkler system in the basement only. These are apartment complexes. So if you have watched the news recently in Portland, we had a fire occur at an apartment complex and it burned that baby almost right down to the ground. And it was a older complex that was shaped sort of like a square where it has like an uh, in sort of, uh, it's like an interior courtyard almost. Anyway, it caught on fire and it did not go out. So if you have a basement only sprinkler system, I think they were done, maybe designed that way because of uh, they had coal chutes or, or oil, uh, oil fire, you know, boiler systems or something like that. That's not an uncommon thing. So back in the 70s, in this case, there was a big chunk of this building that was not protected. Remember, kids, sprinklers put fires out. Fire alarm systems tell you they're there. But sprinklers put them out, and that's the difference between this, uh, the, the two systems here. So the building was a mixed construction. High-rise portion was of a fire-resistive construction, while the low-rise casino consisted of both protected and unprotected non-combustible construction. The low-rise portion included protection on non-combustible construction. However, large areas of structural steel had neither been protected or, over the life of the building, had been removed. Classification, according to NFPA 220-79, the standard on this type of building construction included both one and two type construction. High-rise construction consisted of structural steel protected with both reinforced concrete and gypsum wallboard. 
So most interior partitions were of gypsum wallboard on steel studs, including enclosures around the means of egress. That's the way out. In the low-rise portion of the building, the floors were concrete slab uh, in portions were of gypsum wallboard on steel studs. Most partitions extended above the ceilings. However, in some cases, there were openings in the partitions above the ceilings. These openings facilitated in return air movement for the heating, ventilation, and, condition, and air conditioning systems. So, all stop, kids. What is that called? That's called a plenum return system. That means that we would pump air into a building and pull it back up into the plenum and bring it back to a central point in the plenum and move it back to the air handlers. So this would be a quote-unquote plenum return system, as I understand this. The owners fought the installation of fire sprinklers. I'm going to say that one more time. The owners fought the installation of fire sprinklers. Now, you can't do that today. I mean, there are some installations where you can't put fire sprinklers. I get that. But for the most part, that's not going to happen. Articles indicate that despite receiving a recommendation letter from one of their own consultants or of an engineering company indicated the li quote, the liability of all the unsprinkled areas in this building should be a concern to your corporation. Fred Benninger, B-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R, Benninger, I guess would be the right way to say that. Fred Benninger, MGM chairman at the time. That's a nice touch that you added, Tyler. Uh, MGM chairman at the time decided against installing fire sprinklers. We don't need that. This stuff's never going to catch on fire. The NFPA investigation said, quote, the determination of whether sprinklers were required or not was based upon the, the requirements of the Uniform Building Code. And before 1976, casinos in Las Vegas were not considered exhibition halls and sprinklers are not required by the authority having jurisdiction. It could not be determined why certain areas were provided with sprinkler protection and others was not. Apparently, the final determination was based upon the hours of operation of the areas in question. Because fire loved to punch a time clock. Those areas not operating on a 24-hour basis were required to have automatic sprinkler protection. Sprinklers are not required if the area is occupied around the clock. Let that sink into your marbles for a second. The deli was originally open 24 hours a day, and as a result, the sprinklers were not installed in this area. What a bucket of stupid. And now, I understand it's 72, and I understand that, that you know, there are different rules back then. I get it. I mean, I was born in the 60s. I understand. There were different rules then. It is believed that the most probable source of ignition in this fire was heat produced from electrical short circuiting of an ungrounded conductor into a flexible metal conduit. Huh. I didn't see that one coming. This occurred in wiring within a combustible concealed space on the west side of a pie case in a waitress's serving station along the south wall of the deli. Again, just going to repeat that this was because of a pie case. The first materials ignited, including plywood used to enclose 
the Pikes. The fire most likely smoldered for a period of time before breaking out into the concealed space and into the deli serving station at approximately 7.05 to 7.10 a.m. Once open, flaming in the service station took place. So basically, once they fed it with oxygen, uh, it, it took off. The fire began to spread on lightweight fuels such as plastic, paper, and combustibles in the interior finish. Initially, smoke moved directly from the serving station through a transfer grill to the return air plenum above the ceiling. So now you've got smoke product. So let's think about this. What kills people in a fire? It's, it's, not, it's not the fire. By the time the fire has hit you, you are dead. This is why heat detectors in the fire alarm world aren't life safety devices. If you're hot enough to trip the heat detector, you're already dead. What's killing people in fires is the smoke production and all the toxic outgassing. That is what kills you. The heat, if it's not the toxic gases, it's not the smoke, then it's the heat itself will actually uh, ruin your lungs, right? So, smoke goes up into the return air plenum. Full involvement in the serving station and then in the deli, along with a lack of adequate fire barriers, allowed the transfer of heat and smoke right into the casino. So, no firewalls. No firewalls. Everybody who knows me, who's been in my classes, you know, whether it's fire alarm or whatever it is I'm talking about, or even in specialized controls, I always talk about firewalls. Always maintain the firewalls. Those barriers keep fire and smoke and smoke product from moving in between certain segments of the building. So this obviously didn't happen. A flame front moved through the casino and it became heavily involved, consuming combustible furnishings, contents, and the interior finish. Presence of fuel, air supply, and a very large undivided area allowed for rapid fire spread and heavy smoke production. Now, I remember being in these casinos in the 70s as a kid. My, my parents, we lived in San Diego. My parents would go there once in a while. So I remember going in the Hacienda, the Flamingo, uh, a couple other of those larger casinos at the time. I don't know if I ever went in the MGM Grand as a kid or not, probably, but but I remember those. And there were a lot of curtains, uh, thick carpeting, a way to, to sort of keep the noise down. So these are some of the things that fed this fire, right? The thick black smoke and toxic fumes, along with the absence of sprinkler systems, hindered rescue efforts and evacuation procedures, which would make sense. Seismic joint shafts, here we go. Seismic joint shafts and elevator hoistways contributed to the smoke movement into and throughout the high-rise tower. These shafts and hoists allowed the smoke to move through the entire building. So, why do we have either fire doors on elevator shafts or why do we pressurize the shafts? This is exactly why. Why do the elevators recall to specific floors to stop them from moving? This is exactly why. I remember seeing the smoke pour out of the top of the elevator shafts on this on this building. I remember seeing this as a kid. So it was I mean it was pouring out. If you look at the I'm sure you can go on YouTube and find it. Look at the look at the video of this. All right. So uh, of course I hadn't thought about seismic joint shafts. So if you guys are not familiar with that is whenever they put two buildings together and they're two separate buildings they'll they'll do a building it's a it's basically a joint. It's a gap. 
modern buildings, as you see today, if you walk through, you know, my hospital, you'll find them all over the place. There's a special way that they seal those and that they allow the buildings to move independently if there's an earthquake. But they also obviously for fire purposes will will uh, stop that from happening. These shafts and hoists allowed smoke to move through the entire building all the way up to the 26th floor, utilizing the plenum space to move around the building. All three of the interior stairways were enclosed with construction that did not have a fire-resistant rating. So stairwells, you can go to the stairwells and be safe. That's what that's all about. And so now if you go into a modern building, you'll see that the stairwells have, you know, two or four hour uh, ratings on the firewalls, depending on what you're in. All right. So those were not rated for that. So of course the stairwells became places that fire could then spread. In addition, there were non-rated access panels that allowed smoke and heat to spread into the stairwells. And at least one of them, those are those panels that we opened up that, that take the screwdrivers kids. The smoke-proof towers of W-2 was enclosed with plywood at the bottom, which burned through, allowing smoke to spread into W-2, which must be a stairwell, which completely negates having the fire-resistant stuff throughout the rest of the stairwell. So one area happens to be where the fire breaks through, you're stuck. Now you've got a problem. So the reason that fire marshals and the reason that all of us are, are kind of, you know, jerks about this is if I punch a hole through a firewall and I use the right product to uh, seal it up, and I'll just talk about a Firestop product that you can pick the brand you like. I happen to like STI. You put a product in and let's suppose you're running a cable through that Firestop. Fire will burn the cable out, even if it's a piece of pipe. If it's a piece of PVC pipe, that pipe will burn out. We understand that. But what the fire stop does is it expands, super expands, to the tune that it will not just seal off the, where the pipe was, it'll seal the entire hole and become part of the firewall. So that's why these things are in place, so that when the cable or whatever it is burns out, it will seal the hole and keep that firewall integrity. This is where, this is why. So HVAC systems operated during the entire fire and actually contributed to the smoke spread throughout the high-rise tower. This is, this is the part that gets spooky, so hold on tight. The equipment, as far as could be determined, was not equipped with smoke detectors that were arranged to shut down the fire systems, and some fire dampers were even arranged so that they would not close when fusible links were melted so that air would still pass through them. A lot of these systems were utilized to bring air into the rooms of the hotel, which meant it was bringing smoke and smoke product and carbon monoxide directly into the rooms. You're minding your own business as you do. You're in a room. They're telling you to stay in place because, I don't know, maybe the stairwells are full of smoke. Who the heck knows? You're laying, and they found people like this, laying in their beds, no smoke in the room, no indication in the room that any smoke product had ever entered in there. What entered in there were toxic gases and carbon monoxide. It came in through the system. When they, when they pulled the air back out, the people were dead, laying on the floor, laying on their beds, completely asphyxiated. HVAC systems 
contributed to the smoke spread. Equipment, as far as can be determined, was not determined with smoke detectors. So I'm not a huge fan of duct detectors, but this is what they're for. Duct detectors look for smoke in the ducts, especially in the supply and return ducts. I mean, there's only two different types, but it's not uncommon to put them right there after the motors to look for, for when the motor burns up. And in certain return air plenums, depending on what they're doing, to sample the air coming back. If you have a complete air return plenum system, and some of the high-rises we have downtown have that, there will just be two or three or four smoke detectors in front of where the air returns. So on an entire floor of a building, the air will come back to the core where you might have a couple of turbine fans moving the air. As the air comes back to get sucked down into the, into the filter bank and get, get heated or cooled, that's where these devices are. They may not even be duct detectors. It may just simply be spot smoke detectors. And so you have to know exactly where to open the ceiling, find it, and test that smoke detector. This is why. Dampers that didn't close. So there are two types of dampers. There are fusible link dampers, which those are fire dampers. When fire gets in that, it melts a link out at whatever temperature it's set, 135, let's just pick a temperature. That fusible link melts, the spring slams shut, stops air movement in there. Now, in more modern buildings, we have actual motors, and a lot of these motorized dampers are kept up all the time, so the motor is it's kind of holding the damper. If you kill the power to it, the motor de-energizes, the damper comes down and seals. Uh, there are also pneumatic dampers out there, so we hold them up with air pressure, pull the air pressure, and they close. I will tell you that right now, Finding qualified people who understand smoke dampers and can test these and certify these is, is a tough find in this town. There are not a lot of companies doing it. There are not a lot of people who can do it. There are qualifications that are needed for it. And fire marshals want these things tested. Why? I don't know. Because they're looking at, a, at an entire building as all the different subsystems that are required to stop fire movement. You have fire alarm systems, fire sprinklers, fire smoke dampers, fire dampers, fire walls, uh, even the way that fire doors close and if they're sealing correctly, all of these things, including pressurization fans, including changing direction of airflow, all these things together make up a system to protect lives. So <clears throat> I know every once in a while I get on a soapbox and jump up and down and scream and shout and holler, but every time I have a fire in this city, I, I kind of I hold my breath for a second. Is it a building I've worked in? Did I make some sort of critical error in judgment if I tested it? And knock on wood, that hadn't happened to me so far. We've had fires in buildings we've worked on, but you know this is going to happen at, at, at any time. Most of the time, the systems worked as they're supposed to work. But I have been in buildings where the fire marshal has wanted uh, fire smoke dampers and fire dampers tested, and there wasn't a soul I could find who could do the work. Just, just, just didn't exist. So you want a good million-dollar business, go into fire smoke damper testing and certification. I know of one company in Tiger that does it. They're an engineering firm. They do a marvelous job. It costs you a, it costs you a Rolex to do it. But... They're the, only, they're the only game in town that do it right. And I will tell you, as I get off my soapbox, 
that I had a, a Washington State Fire Marshal require us do some fire smoke damper testing in a facility. We thought we had 18 fire smoke dampers identified. There were actually 49. And when they got done with that job, you know how many of those things passed? None. They replaced all 49. So if you want to go into a business, um, that is going to be the business to be in in the future, along with LED lighting. So anyway, learn how to do fire smoke dampers, kids. That's important. So anyway, the fusible links wouldn't melt. Uh, air still passed through it, blah, blah, blah. Brought smoke product into the rooms. And people were killed. The smoke spread through the elevator hoistways of the high-rise tower. Several elevator cars were stopped slightly above or below the casino level, and two cars fell again. Two cars fell below the casino floor. Door openings at the lobby level allowed smoke to spread into the hoistways and smoke movement into the high-rise floors and into the elevator lobby areas. Now, depending on the type of building and depending on when these buildings were, were put together, we will either close doors and elevator lobbies that will stop the, the spread of smoke to go up these things, or we will pressurize the elevator uh, shafts themselves and throw air in them and make sure that that smoke can't use it as a chimney. The, the elevator, the state elevator inspector and the, the elevator uh, companies here in Oregon know their game very, very well. I, I, I cannot, I don't think I have worked with a bad elevator company. I'm sure they're out there. I just haven't worked with one. Everybody I've worked with in that field is right on their game. The last time I talked to Hartung, who is the chief elevator guy here in Oregon, he wanted, he wanted two signatures on every single elevator inspection uh, for smoke detection. He wanted one from the fire inspector who did the work and one from the elevator mechanic to sign off on it. Even though there were not two lines yet, he wanted two signatures on it. And that was new. And so as a manager of a company, uh, I was one of the first companies he said, you will not do this work. You will not go out and test elevators without having an elevator mechanic there from uh, the company, and you will both sign it. And I said, well, if I'm the only guy doing this or my company is the only one doing it, how am I going to get the other companies to do it? And we made an agreement. He called every elevator company and said, this is the way you're going to do your work, and this is what my inspectors are going to look for on these cards. And I called as many fire alarm companies as I knew, and I said, this is the way they want to do the work. And within about a year, all the companies were calling the elevator mechanics in order to do the work. That throws the burden of that elevator inspector on the business owner who doesn't want to pay for it. So if you're out doing work and you need an elevator inspection done, and the elevator company doesn't want to provide a technician or the, or the owner of the building doesn't want to have an elevator company there, you're going against the law. I recommend you call the man down in Salem who will tell you exactly how it's supposed to be done. So that's the rules, and we have to play by the rules. But what, what is happening is that once you go into that elevator shaft, that is their domain. They own it. It's not ours. Uh, I once worked uh, uh, an elevator. I was working for a company, and the guy had me do on my own, my own elevator testing, and I did it. I had a uh, operations manager from Kone call me up and say, 
can I ask you how that happened? And I told him, you know, or her, I said, I, I just have keys and that's the, we've always done it and blah, blah, blah. And they said, I tell you what, we won't turn you in if you never do that again. And I literally walked back to my boss and threw all the church keys, which are what you open up elevator doors with on his desk and said, that was the end of that. I'm not doing this again. I'm not breaking the law. I'm not going to put myself at risk. I'm not going to put my license at risk. I'm not going to tick off the elevator people because you want to maximize your profits. We've got to do this right. We've got to do this safe. We've got to do this legal. That's exactly what we did. So same thing applies to you. You should not open up an elevator door, period. You can't. It's not it's not right. So this trade belongs to them. That's what they're talking about here. This is why those rules exist. This is why those guys make the bucks. This is not an easy job. Consequences of the fire were devastating, not only to terms and human loss, but also revealing the vulnerabilities to the existing fire safety regulations and practices. The life safety exposure included fire spread throughout the casino following full involvement, uh, the of a deli and heavy smoke exposure throughout the high-rise hotel. 17 victims were located on the casino level, even though they said that the casino floor area did a fantastic job of stopping fire spread because of the automatic sprinklers. Uh, there just were not enough. There just was not enough. So partial sprinklers will put the fire out there, but they won't put it out everywhere. And there's nothing you can do about that. 61 victims located in the high-rise tower were among those exposed to untenable smoke conditions in the rooms, corridors, stairways, and elevator lobbies. 10 of the 78 casino-level high-rise victims were located in elevators and on various floors, as determined by the Clark County Coroner. All high-rise victims and 14 of the casino-level victims died of smoke and carbon monoxide inhalation. Three casino victims died of burns. So three died of burns and carbon monoxide inhalation. One person jumped uh, and died of massive head injuries. Some 600 persons were injured and required medical attention. The evacuation of the high-rise tower uh, took about four hours. Some of the occupants evacuated early in the fire, and some were later on with, uh, obviously, firefighter assistance. An estimated 300 persons were evacuated by helicopter, Wow. From the roof. NFPA human behavior study shows that the majority of the study showed that that the uh, the majority of the population evacuated over stairwells. So stairways still became the major point of evacuation. Uh, uh, Favorable factors in the MGM helicopter evacuation included clean, uh, basically clean conditions or, or good weather, daylight hours and the availability of the United States Air Force. So, luck, kids. Luck. I say this with uh, as much gusto as I can, but every code book I work in, whether it's NFPA 72, 101, or 70, is written upon the deaths, maiming, and awe snaps of everybody before us. You come out with product A, put it in, it zaps somebody in the face and kills them, and they go, well, that was a bad product, and they begin to either alter the product or take it back out. So when we pick up a code book and we look at it, you are seriously looking at a, at a 
at a at the best thing, the best snapshot of what we can put together and put it in a binder and say, this is what we're going to go with now. And immediately before, before this thing is even, even printed, bound, accepted and sent out, they're already altering it. They've already made errors. As a guy who read the photovoltaic piece when it first came out in the code, it was very small, uh, Sun good, hits this, makes electricity, uh, all's well. Here's your first page on that. And you could see by the next code cycle, um, sun good, electricity good, we need multiple shutoffs. And what do you do if you have an acre's worth of solar panels and you can't turn off the sun? Oh, boy, I guess we should probably put some sort of safety you know, recommendations in there. And of course I'm, I'm, I'm being dramatic and uh, adding flair, but seriously, the very first, I mean, I was able to watch photovoltaics come into 70 and then each cycle get thicker and thicker and thicker and more and more rules. And it looks like, oh, well, they're just making stuff up. No, Truly based upon problems, truly based upon people going, yeah, wow, I got, you know, 10 acres of solar panels and that one's on fire. What do I do to stop it? How do we handle that? The microinverters are going. What are we doing? What? Are, how are we, we've got stuff arc welding here. You can't shut the sun off, blah, 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 blah. All these things, all these safety tips come from, from experiences. So reforms and improvements. In the wake of the MGM Grand Fire, a series of critical reforms were implemented across the country to address a shortcoming exposed by the disaster, and these reforms included mandatory fire sprinklers. Building codes were revised to mandate the installation of sprinklers in hotels, high-rises, and other public spaces. These sprinklers significantly reduce the spread of fires, provide critical time for evacuation, and aid firefighting efforts. There is not a sprinkler company I know it doesn't have a bumper sticker on one of their vehicles that says fire sprinklers save lives. This is an absolute fact. These things put fire out, flat out. Do they ruin buildings? Yes. Do we care that they ruin buildings? No, we don't care. Are they putting them in homes? Yes. Should they be in homes? You're absolutely right. They should be in homes. Everywhere you have fire and anywhere people sleep, you should have a sprinkler system. Now, are we going to retro into a house that was built in 74 with a sprinkler system? No. Half of us couldn't afford that. Should they be there? Yes. Who's going to mandate that? You can't. It's grandfathered in. And you're going to go to buildings and see stuff where you're like, well, how come there's a sprinkler system on, only in the court, in, in the hallways, like an exitway sprinkler system, but there's not one in the rooms. That was because it was done that way. And just like you can't afford to go to your home and start putting in CPPC, Today, it's very tough for a business owner or a building owner to go, well, gosh, we should put in metal pipes and, you know, put sprinklers in now. It's a tough call. So you're always weighing life safety with money. Should it be that way? No. Is it that way? Yes. So if you go into a building or you decide to, if you're going to go rent an apartment, for example, and you look and you go, huh, there's sprinklers in the basement, but there's not any on the third floor. That should be a consideration. 
You could rent the place. I'm not saying that it's wrong to do, but think about it. If a fire breaks out on the first floor and you're on the third, you know where the fire escape is, you know how to get out of that building. If it's a 100-year-old or 200-year-old or whatever wooden building, have you seen some of these wooden buildings when they go up and the wood has been in place since, you know, 1890? Well, that can be an ugly scene. So think about it. There are also sprinkler systems out there uh, and designs on sprinkler systems that are pretty, pretty cool. There are some real uh, well-designed suppression systems. There's one that's on the top of my head that actually uses uh, high-pressure nitrogen, and it will atomize the water, mist it, throw it down on top of the fire, put the fire out, and the, because of the way that they, that they atomize the water with nitrogen, it, it isn't wet. I know it sounds counterintuitive, and I realize that some of you who are not sprinkler monkeys go, that doesn't make sense. Look it up. Uh, look up the system. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. I've seen them used in places where they have paper. <laughs> they fire the system off, and it doesn't get wet. How is it? I don't know. Science. But these things work great. So I'm a huge sprinkler monkey. I think these things are fantastic. Improved fire safety regulations. Stricter fire safety regulations were put in place, emphasizing the use of fire-resistant materials, proper maintenance of electrical systems, and the provision of clear and accessible emergency exits. So, emergency exit signs. If you've ever tested or worked on emergency exit signs, they seem pretty lame because for 35 or 50 bucks, you get this sign that you can put up that says EXIT. That's it. Oh, that's lame. We don't need that. Well, I went into a hotel a few years ago and started seeing exit signs on the floor and on the ceiling. Why would they be on the floor? Why would they be on the floor where kids can play with them and kick them and break them? Well, they're on the floor because when there's smoke, guess where you're at? On the floor, crawling. If the exit sign's seven feet up and the smoke is six feet up, you're not going to see it. And so you're going to be on the floor crawling out. And guess what that exit sign on the floor is there for? For you to crawl out, for you to see and figure out how to get out. In the military, in the Navy especially, uh, there were exercises and drills that we did where we would actually turn off the lights or, or uh, put blindfolds on, on people and learn how to crawl out of your rack uh, to one of the many ways you could get out of a compartment. In some cases, there may only be one way out of a compartment. How to find it in the dark, how to find the ladder, how to climb up, how to open up the scuttle, and how to get to the next deck or how to get out. Fire on a ship is a super scary thing. Uh, we'll take flooding. I'll take flooding on a ship any day of the week. Flooding I can deal with. Fire is awful. So, like it or not, I've been around this uh fire business since I was a teenager because as soon as I went in the Navy, that's one of the things you wind up becoming, whether you like it or not, as a firefighter to some degree. So learning to realize just how terrible fire is and that, yes, heat rises, smoke rises, you got to get on the ground, you've got to crawl, you can't see a bloody thing. There's no way for you to know where to go except by feel and by memory. So... <clears throat> Exit lights, things like this. All of these materials, like the fire-resistant materials, they're now finding out that some of the fire-resistant materials or some of the fire-resistant 
or fire retardant stuff that they spray on like uh, couches or uh, drapes or things like that. Some of it can actually be cancerous or can, can be uh, carcinogenic and cause cancer. So that's a bummer. I'm not saying that, uh, boy, I'm glad we put all that fire retardant stuff on all those, on those curtains and then gave everybody cancer, uh, especially since I had a kid die of cancer. But I'm telling you that there needs to be more research into this because in a modern home or in a modern uh, hotel or whatever you have, everything in that hotel room when it catches on fire will produce toxic materials, toxic uh, outgasses. So you don't want to breathe it. You don't want to be around it. You want to figure out what your way is. I would rather we put the, the small risk of cancer on drapes so that we can reduce the, the spread of fire so that people have time to get the heck out of these places. All right. <clears throat> Clear and accessible emergency exits. Fire emergency response training. First responders and hotel staff received enhanced training in emergency response evacuation procedure, effective communications during a crisis. This preparedness proved crucial, minimizing the harm during subsequent emergencies. So high rises. Every high-rise building uh, so it gets above 70 feet. It's considered a high-rise. You cannot get a hook and ladder or you know a, a vehicle with its ladder above that height. So you cannot evacuate people out of tall buildings all at once. So there has to be a methodology in dealing with high-rise fires and how you move people. That is why in the fire alarm world, we do floor above and floor below. So if I have a fire on the eighth floor, then I will also sound the ninth floor and the seventh floor and the eighth floor. All three of those floors go. We begin to evacuate people off the floors. And then by that point, EMS is there and the fire department is there and they're at the fire command center, which is a room. Generally, it's easily available right off the main street somewhere. They're then operating all of the systems to allow them to know how they're going to evacuate wh who and where. And so they will systematically get all the people out of the building without them stampeding and stomping each other to death. Every fire department knows what it takes to move a mass amount of people out of a building. And so they come and practice. So if the fire department, or if you're working in a high-rise downtown, for example, I'll pick on First and Main. I've worked at First and Main uh, both for PSI and for Western States when I work for them. Uh, excellent, excellent crew. Because they have clients in the building uh, that uh, are uh, high up federal people, they do special drills. They broke up their training quarterly. Uh, they practiced how to evacuate the floors they were on their game so that the fire department knows exactly what to do. The maintenance staff knows exactly how to handle it. They all know how to handle the, this, uh, it's an EST fire system. They all know how to handle it. They all know how to handle the fire, the, the fans and how to blow the smoke and move it around. So being familiar with the way that the system operates and helping the fire department understand it, or they will have the crew there to understand it is a critical thing. This is why, you know, you don't walk into a fire, a fire control center and leave 
old batteries and crap on the floor or books or or stacks of paper that don't allow you to access an area in an emergency. So each one of these codes, each one of these things plays a part in life safety. Fire pumps, how fire pumps work. Are they being tested on a regular basis? Are the are the are are the tanks of water under the fire pumps being looked at? How many times have we have we done work and we don't know the condition of the tank of water underneath the fire pump? And I'll give you for example, my last my last company, we had to go down and actually work on one. We had to change out some sensors in there. I brought my best fitter, my best uh, EST3 guy, and myself. We we permit entry, uh, gas freed the the vault. I went in and did the work personally. I figured, hey, if I have the best fitter I've got and the best uh, technician I've got, I can put myself in that in that vault since I know it's gas freed and certified and permitted, and go do the work. And I did. So went in there and did all the work. That particular uh, tank had been basically had a problem where they had to seal coat the walls. They had to do it twice. So this particular building had already had this tank emptied a couple of times, completely stripped off, put the stuff on the wall. It didn't stick correctly, tore it off, put it on again, and it stayed. When I got in the vault was probably months and months and months later. It was not fun, kids. I'll tell you that. It was nasty and dirty. I still have uh, stains on some of my some of my clothing from it just because of the stuff that grows in there. Anyway, we did all the work, got it all checked out, figured out what the problem was, filled it back up with water. And I realized that probably half of the buildings I'd worked in downtown, I'd never ever been in those tanks. I don't know when the last time they were inspected was. I don't know if the tanks are outside and there's a manhole that people aren't putting cigarette butts down it. I don't know the condition of them. Not that it's my gig, it's not that it's that's my my only job I do here, but wouldn't we want to know what the condition of those tanks were? Because as soon as a disaster like this happens, that's when this stuff comes out. So all of the NFPA codes that drive sprinklers and all the ones that drive fire alarms and all the, the ridiculousness that we see put in those codes, that ridiculousness is there for a reason. Now, we may not agree with the reason, we may not understand the reason, but there's a reason. That's all I can say. Anyway, the, um, so MGM Grand underscored the importance of educating the public about fire safety practices, encouraging individuals to be more uh, vigilant and proactive in assessing their surroundings for potential hazards. Thank you. When you go into a place, just do a quick search to figure out where the exits are. When you walk into a theater, just make sure you know where the exits are, okay, if they're on either side of the screen, how to get out of the place. Why? Oh, I don't know. It's a crazy time. You never know what the heck's going to happen, but you do want to know how to get out of a place. So, so think about it. Think about it for you. Think about it for your family. Think about it for your loved ones. The investigation and research. The investigation in the fire's causes led to a deeper understanding of fire behavior which in turn informed the development of more effective firefighting tactics and strategies. This was the second largest of life, I'm sorry, this was the second largest loss of life due to fire in the U.S. history. The first being the wine, 
Weinkauf Hotel in Atlanta, Georgia in 1945. So lost a whole bunch of folks in 1945. That might be a, a nice topic some night. And then we had this issue happen in 1973, I believe it was. No, 1980. I'm sorry. It was built in 1980. So uh, that's not too, too bad, especially when you compare it to places around the world, right? But still, any loss of life is a loss of life that we could prevent. And that's kind of what I'm getting after here. All right. That's my soapbox and lecture for this time. I hope you guys enjoyed it and let us know. Thanks for listening to the Half Watt Podcast. We always want to hear from you and we encourage you to email us at halfwattpod at gmail.com with questions or even your own stories. Funny, crazy, or praiseworthy, we want to hear it all. You can follow us on Instagram at halfwattpod to stay up to date on our feed. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and share us with a friend the best way to help us grow. The Half Watt Podcast is a production of Now Hear This Studios.